Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're taking a different approach. We're going to step aside from the politics. We're going to step aside from sort of the personal experiences. We're going to look into fitness, health, and everything that that involves. I'm here with Moody Danawi, aka The Diet Doctor. Moody has extensive professional experience and an unconventional approach to nutrition, which has earned him a reputable following across the globe. Moody has various qualifications from the University of Sydney, covering everything from nuclear medicine, mathematics, education, psychology, nutrition, and also a master's in research methodology. That's a lot of education. (laughs) A lot of um, professional student, pretty much. Mm. Tell us a bit about your academic background and how it has influenced your career in the fitness industry. Um, The academic background was diverse, not because I wanted it to be diverse in in the beginning. It was diverse because a lot of us uni students don't know which direction we want to take, especially in the beginning. Uh, Started with nuclear medicine, which is the diagnostic side of uh, a horrible thing called cancer that too many of us are all too familiar with. Then went into the mathematics realm and did uh, five years of mathematics and I loved it and I love numbers. It makes sense in a world that doesn't make sense. Uh, so that was good and and then taught, I taught mathematics uh, for several years in both the public and the private sector. From there I loved learning. I hated not knowing. And education is very addictive. And because we as human beings uh, – we, so we dislike ignorance so much. We tend to veer towards education. That's the, it's, a, it's an intuitive thing. That, um, uh, there's two types of, uh, the Arabs have, and ancients have two types of uh, learning, whereas there's alam daruri and alam nadari. So the daruri is the stuff that's intuitive. And I think intuitively we all need to, we all want to learn. And um, nadari is the stuff that we pick up um, by uh, by having discourse and uh, discussion and learning things through visuals. And from there, I went on to research methodology, which is very, very abstract and very addictive because with research methodology, you've got the qualitative and the quantitative analysis. Um, and you, but you also get the opportunity to delve into um, the validity of research. And then you start to have an open mind when you um, look at various studies because not all studies that are published are just, if there's money influencing something, then it's bias. And we get to learn how to differentiate between something that's a validated study and something that's nonsense. So it's, it's, it's vast, but they, they, they all came in handy, subhanAllah. They're all intertwined. Mm. Nothing is an accident. Uh, we believe that everything is from a loss of apartheid. So everything was, uh, has, has a purpose. And the purpose was, in this case, so far, to use all of that to help to help people in the realm of um, health, wellness, nutrition, exercise, physiology, um, and, and the rest of it, whether it be uh, trying to overcome uh, a health anomaly or whether it be an athlete trying to improve in their performance. Beautiful. Can you go into more detail about any research you have done on diet and fitness and what were your findings? Uh, there's an extensive amount, especially of late. So, and the links and the tie-ins that it has with prophetic medicine is phenomenal, especially the new research that's coming. The research that I like to look at is, it's vast. It's from exercise and the efficacy of exercise, of one exercise over the other, but it's also about food and not just the quality of food or what we should be eating, the manner in which we should be eating that food, and food combinations and how it affects our gut which is something that the Prophet spoke a lot about, which is gut health. Yeah. Now it seems to be the cool and trendy thing to talk about, but it's been cool and trendy for 1,400 years. years. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a beautiful thing, but the correlation between new findings, whether it be sitting down while you're eating and drinking, whether it be uh, not combining certain foods, like don't have fruit after you eat, there's a lot of, a lot of things that don't throw away the bran and the fiber, um, from the foods, so don't eat processed foods. All of these things were taught to us to stay moving. We are designed to move. Beautiful. So what kind of connections have you found between Islamic scripture and health and fitness and contemporary science? Well, 
sitting down while drinking anything. That's a very simple one. And don't drink whilst you eat. So, for example, when I eat something like one of those beautiful dates that you had there <laughs> earlier, if I was to drink water with it, it would disrupt the digestive process dramatically because what I'm eating is being interpreted by the brain. The ingredients in that mouthful is being interpreted are being interpreted by the brain in both both in terms of quantity and food types, and then from there, the brain is sending signals to the stomach to release enzymes and acids relevant to the quantity of the food and the type of food. So it's a very abstract process. If you think about that, it's it's remarkable. It is. Itself. Now, if those enzymes and acids are there to do a certain job, which is to take the nutrients and the building blocks from the food and deliver it through your bloodstream into the muscle, to the muscles and tissues in question, so you can be the best version of yourself and you dilute those acids and enzymes with a, with a mouthful of water, then you disrupt the entire process. So there are problems from a gastrointestinal standpoint. There are also problems uh, not just in the way you feel, but it's also been linked to diseases and food intolerances. And that's just one example. You can, and if the other, it can even get even worse if you're standing as opposed to sitting. And if you're standing, there's a specific speed that the food and water passes through the esophagus and then into the stomach and small and large intestines. If you are standing, that speed is a little bit too fast. So it's a very specific speed of an average of seven meters per second. Yep. And if that speed is sped up while you're standing, the signal between the brain and the stomach is now uh, delayed or it happens too quick. So you've, the food lands before the brain has had a chance to communicate with the stomach and then you're going to have problems again, which is why we were taught to sit and eat, yep. which is something that we don't do often anymore. And it was very – it was the norm. If you look at uh, our ancestors, it was the norm in all cultures to sit down and eat. Um, you mentioned food combinations earlier. So what – should particular foods be eaten together or are there any foods that shouldn't be eaten together? From my experience, I've noticed that a lot of gastrointestinal issues can be uh, prevented by eating foods that have what's called a higher bioavailability. So they have a higher, uh, a larger uh, degree of uh, being processed quicker and they are like fibrous and cruciferous carbohydrates, so your vegetables and your salads and things like that. If you eat those in conjunction with other foods, too much fiber in a food is bad for you, not enough fiber is bad for you. Water is good for you but not in excess and in little amounts it also is harmful. Now, that's the same with food. You create a similar environment if you eat certain foods together. You may have too much of one thing, not enough of another, and the way that the, the stomach digests that can be a very harsh process. But if you eat food that has a fast bioavailability, like if I eat my salads or my vegetables, I like to eat my vegetables before first. Yep. So if I eat my vegetables first and foremost, then everything that comes after that will digest after that and it won't ferment. If, hypothetically speaking, I was to eat my protein source, whether it be chicken or beef or whatever it may be, and my carbohydrates, and then I eat my vegetables afterwards, these veggies that can digest in minutes as opposed to hours are sitting on something on top of a food group that is blocking the digestive process, yeah. and hence they ferment, and they rot, and they cause bloating, gastrointestinal distress. And that's also being linked to stomach cancer. It's being linked to intolerances such as gluten intolerance and lactose intolerance. And intolerances of all kinds. So basically, go easy on the gut mm. is the message. Beautiful. And should protein be hydrolyzed or not? In terms of the protein powder itself yep. as a supplement. The easier it is to digest, the better it is because post-workout you want to get your nutrients in ASAP because your your body's in in a state where it can saturate a lot of nutrients because of the process of what – because of the, the physiological process of training, the body becomes in a highly absorbable state when it comes to nutrients. Carbohydrates are essential. I don't believe in low-carb diets. I don't believe in any fat diets. I don't believe in any – of one habit taking precedence over another. I don't think that's um, that's the message that we – that my, myself, that I stand for. I don't – I stand for education. I don't stand for keto over paleo or paleo over intermittent fasting. No, education is, is the answer to, to all. Perfect. And – you mentioned fads earlier and yeah. like uh, certain diets being fads. So one fad is coffee, which we're drinking at the moment. Absolutely. And 
like I'm I'm a coffee junkie to be honest. Like I love my coffee, black with milk. However, I'll take my coffee anyway. Uh, mine. What are the impacts of coffee, and can it be good for you? Well, one third of Australians get their antioxidants from coffee, not from fruit. So to say it's completely bad for you uh, would be an unjust statement. Are there things that people should be conscious of? Yes, our coffee in Australia, in particular, isn't. If those for those who have travelled, we've got the best tasting coffee. Yeah, definitely. The reason why we do have the best tasting coffee is is its acidity. Because of that, you should have something in your stomach before you have coffee. If you have it on an empty stomach and you hear the statement a lot, don't talk to me. I haven't had my coffee. It's not the way you want to start your day. With you want to have it, you want to prime your stomach for what it's going to endure, and then have something acidic such as coffee afterwards just so you don't hurt the lining of your stomach because that can also lead to intolerances. But it is very good for you if you have too much of it um, and you need it as a stimulant, for example, to help you get through the what we call 3PM-itis or whatever you want to call it, that's the, that little bit of a dip that you get in energy throughout the course of the day, then it can come in handy. But if you abuse it, you can also hurt your adrenal glands, you can get adrenal fatigue, and then nothing is going to make you feel better. And detoxing is quite difficult yep. if you've been drinking a lot of coffee. What I would recommend is that you have half a glass of water to counteract the diuretic effects of the coffee and don't count that water to your total water intake. So if you've been allocated to drink two and a half litres of water a day, that half a cup that you're having to counteract the effects of the coffee, that doesn't count towards the two and a half. Uh, okay. It's separate. You've, got, um, you've been pursuing a career in fitness do you have a background in health and fitness? And what what inspired you to pursue that career? I went back and studied nutrition. Nutrition, and believe it or not, mathematics have a lot in common because nutrition is, for the most part, numbers. And it, it came naturally coming from a fitness background indirectly through competing in natural bodybuilding and things like that since uh, I think the first time I did that, it was early 2000s, late 90s. And it came naturally because it was – a passion and that passion became a part-time job and that part-time job became a full-time job it's very similar to teaching i which i believe is still one of the most noble professions and it doesn't get the credit that it deserves and you know the teacher in our culture is everything the ma'adib is the ma'adib is the is everything the molder and sculptor of character not the person that's just imparting with information that you so you can get by with uh adulthood it's not about that and i believe fitness should be the same as a teacher you should be imparting with knowledge to empower a person that so they can leave lead their life to its fullest capacity and see their fullest potential and the the profound effects that you get to witness are amazing if you if you when you witness uh, somebody overcome a health issue or you witness someone achieve their goal, it's just as rewarding as helping a student pass a mathematics exam. Yeah, definitely. And so to me it came naturally. And working in the fitness realm, so I went, in, went on to study nutrition and went on to study uh, exercise and sports science, etc., and also lectured in those realms. But I find them so similar because your job is purely to help. It's to use education to help, and education overcomes ignorance. So it's a beautiful thing to do. So you, your life is filled with the education side of things and the yeah. fitness side of things, and like you've been on men's health, women's health, yeah. uh, you've been on uh, Triple M. Yeah, I used to be on there quite often with uh, Maddie Johns and the boys. Beautiful. The girl team, yeah. What are the keys to your success? I think just doing things with no agenda. And if you do things – the intention purely from a religious standpoint to the, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you do things with, from, from, a, from a standpoint whereby you expect nothing in return, I believe that uh, we, as a Muslim, I don't believe it's the universe making things work for you. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making things work for you in accordance with that. And if you are helping, genuinely helping for the sake of helping, monetary gain and and, and status and everything else that just becomes a byproduct but it doesn't change you, the focus on the task at hand and fitness has there's so many openings for it because with all due respect to everybody out there doing you know being a personal trainer there are a lot of great trainers out there but 
the industry has you know has acquired a very superficial cosmetic type of a reputation and that's because of social media it become it's become a gateway to for people to follow you obsequiously and blindly so that you can sell a product so you can follow a certain methodology but if you take go back to the roots of why you're there you're not there as a glorified spotter or a glorified rep counter give me five more i'll give you 10 more just tell me why yeah. if you educate you empower that person you should never be afraid that you're giving them if you giving them information is going to make you lose a client because they will gain independence nobody is fully independent we are all dependent creatures it's and it's 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 bizarre how people believe how people feel that they are independent none of us are independent we are all dependent on something whether it be the water that you drink or whether that be the requirement that you sleep your dependency is as obvious as the sun on a summer summer morning and if you cannot see that in your day-to-day existence then you need to sit down and reflect and those people who uh for us we pray uh for others who meditate meditate whatever is your go to do that but for those of you who say you don't have time to meditate or pray for 10 minutes a day or for 20 minutes a day then that person should be praying or meditating for an hour a day definitely yeah definitely so do you believe that that reflection will help you in the long run absolutely because you cannot have longevity without not peace it's not peace of the mind it's peace peace of the heart your heart has to be at peace and that's something that I've learned a lot and even more so especially in this last year this last year has been filled with trials and tribulations alhamdulillah but you have to focus on the task at hand because it's the only way you're going to have longevity and if you can stay focused and for us it's in our ibadah in our worship and if you can stay focused in times of tribulation it's it's one of the most powerful forms of worship and there's a there's a hadith about that too it's a it's a beautiful hadith i'm just trying to remember aftal ibadati until ghadal sarash the best form of ibadah is to to wait for a, a trip to ease from a tribulation or hardship and the companions of the prophet sallallahu used to wait and used to say please and 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 make dua to be in tribulation because mm. and waiting for uh, for the ease as opposed to being in ease waiting for the hardship and that's what this year has taught us definitely in a dramatic, profound way the year has been filled with a lot of different things yeah like mainly mainly covid-19 how has that how has the pandemic affected you in in your work it's actually been a blessing in disguise and i don't mean any disrespect to anybody that's been harmed by the pandemic but um and i'm not here to validate or invalidate the pandemic because that's what a lot of people are going to be probably scrutinizing as soon as you mention the word pandemic is it really this is it really that it's not my job to 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 look into the things that i have no control over um it's it's something that it's not going to um uh, there's a hadith about that too man husn al-samari so you can for you to be the, the the best form of worship is to stay away from matters that do not concern you you do not have power over these matters you have power over what you have what, what you are good at mm. if you have if you are blessed with being a good electrician and somebody can't you know get there you know has an electrical problem and they can't afford to help help and you're able to go out there and help them then fantastic you are doing things charity does not decrease from wealth and with this pandemic a lot of people weren't able to train a lot of people weren't able to didn't have access to the correct knowledge to improve their immune system and that's what everybody was looking for yeah. improving the immune system i won't use the word boost because that's misleading you cannot boost your immune system boosting people that have a boosted immune system have an autoimmune disease so that that's a problem if you have that's a problem if you have you don't want it. it's a marketing uh, uh term that they use but it's you can't boot you can empower and you can support your immune system to do a better job but it it, it didn't really affect me from the the quantity of work that i had it just opened my eyes into having to be more strategic but it also makes you more appreciative definitely it teaches you gratitude now people show gratitude in different ways they some people get up and say you know i'm grateful for this and have a list of things that they're grateful for 
some people watch one hour lectures on how to be grateful. We just say Alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's that simple it's for us. Simple. We just thank yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> so we go straight to the source. We don't see any middleman. So you've you've referred back to religion on multiple occasions now. Yeah. How has um, religion, specifically the Quran, impacted your your strive for health and fitness? It's See, it, it, it's it's helped in different. I can talk about this for days. It's helped in so many different ways. It's helped me help myself, and it's helped me help others. But it's also brought unity as well. So it's allowed me an opportunity to bring unity to a to an area of expertise, allegedly that is um. It's become so vague. It's sad what fitness and health and everything else has become, because. If you look at social media in in particular, it's it's run by a materialistic, hegemonic society mm. that does not acknowledge other forms of knowledge, which is completely contradictory to what an academic should be about. An academic should should be there not to con- to criticize. Uh, blindly, the person that's standing next to him that has a different opinion, but to have intelligent discourse with one another and learn from one another. And that's what the scholars of the past used to do. They used to sit. And so basically the mannerisms and the etiquette that the Quran teaches us is exactly, if you implement that in your job, and in your day-to-day existence, and I've learned that a lot this year, subhanAllah, it's very, very empowering because in a in a world that's filled with uh, sectarianism and people debating about whether this is better and that is better, I would never uh, disreg- or blatantly disregard you know any eating philosophies or a believer of an eating philosophy if they have research based evidence to support it. Yep, definitely. Now, if you've got research based evidence to support it, and another person has research based evidence to support his philosophy or her philosophy of eating and training. And you respect that, and that's and that exa- the reason why I've paid attention to that in detail closely is because that's what the scholars of the past used to do. They used to meet up, and they have differences of opinion. Oh, definitely. They used to talk about you know they used to talk about things like grammar. They used to talk about philosophy. They used to talk about psychology. They used to talk about the sciences, but they each acknowledged each other as scholars. Yep. They didn't disregard. They didn't say that person is not a scholar. That person, they would say, this person is a person of knowledge and wisdom, and they have validity in what they are saying. And they would say that about one another. Educated people of today don't do that, and that's the problem. And one, uh, Imam Ali said a beautiful thing uh, when it comes to being uni- unified. And he said, So it's better to have a group with its impurities than sectarianism with its purity. And if you translate that into society today, it's much more powerful to have a group that have slightly different opinions but are together than have a bunch of people standing individually saying, no, I'm correct, that no. person is completely incorrect. I'm on the right path, he's on the wrong path. And we were warned about those people. The, people that, the, the, the ones that claim that everybody else is wrong and they're correct, yep. that's red flags, not just from a religious standpoint, it's red flags from me. For anywhere, yeah. yeah. Whether it be talking about mathematics or whether we're talking about nutrition, if they're saying that, no, eat paleo is the only way and it's, it's the way you should have to eat and it's the only way to eat and every, and every other eating philosophy has no data, nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. You know, there are, there are perks to the paleo eating philosophy, but it was also the most disease-rife era 40,000 years ago and the average age was 42 I think well I think I'm 42 now so so if you were on that diet yeah, I'd be calling it quits I'll be end tapping, of the road I'll be tapping out there, yeah. <laughs> oh. um, and with regards to working out and your fitness regimen is working out considered a form of worship absolutely absolutely um, the body is given to you as a sacred trust that you have to look after and you'll be held accountable for so you have to look after it. And your body has a right over you and it will testify for you or against you. And I always say this. And we were taught, the, the companions of the Prophet, peace be, peace be upon him, and, uh, were, were examples of such things. They weren't lazy. They weren't lazy people. 
they would wrestle, they would, you know, they would exercise, they were, they were fit. And they encouraged such. Hmm. So the lack of movement causes, you know, blockage in the, in the system. And we know that now, the lack of movement causes the blood to thicken, the viscosity of the blood to thicken, which increases the chances of stroke and, and the heart attack and the rest of it. This is also said to us not to throw away the bran and the fiber from the food. Hmm. So it's part of the food. Part of you throw away the fiber and you're eating processed food. Processed food is the, requires no digestive effort. Yep. And if you're not working out on the inside as well as the outside, you're going to get sick. We are designed, we have a resting metabolic rate. We burn calories to exist. But because we eat processed food, I call them pseudo-foods. Pseudo-foods. So they're, they're edible, but they're not food. They're not food. <laughs> they're not food. They have no caloric value. They have the facade of food. Pretty much, yes. So you've mentioned a few different diets so far. Yeah. We've been talking for a while now. And we've, you've mentioned a few different diets. And you've got the, the title of the diet doctor. I didn't give my, I didn't make that claim by the way. It was a heading in a men's, it was a, I think it was men's fitness or men's health. Uh, made an article um, when I was helping, I think, a few of the rugby league players and a few of the boxers back then. And they, yeah, they, they branded that title for me, I think, because they didn't know whether to call me a mathematician or a nutritionist or somebody <laughs> that was helping with cancer research. Um, so I think it was just a summary. It was just like it, it just joined all the different titles together. Much, yeah, I was working at a um, at a at a clinic uh, until early this year with uh, with what's called active survivors, people who survived from cancer, and helping them increase their bone density because chemotherapy can be quite harsh on uh, yeah. making the bones brittle. And they couldn't come up with a title either. So on the business card, it just just said health executive. I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. We'll stick to that. Why not? Yeah. It's better than having that list of qualifications. That's that right. they, they, yeah. They, it took me a while to read them out. And I'm like, <laughs> I had that. Like, there's, I think that they, they have that at the, at the gym that I'm at now. And I took it down. <laughs> if you're going to read that, and you're like, oh, half your workout time is gone. <laughs> this guy's a bit of a handful. He's probably going to have too much on his plate. Or they're going to uh, associate that with arrogance. And that's the problem. That's the beauty of Islam also. Definitely. Because education has nothing to do with your status in Islam. It's character. Definitely. The Prophet Islam came down as an example of character, and that's all it's about. He's about character. It's about our character. And that's, it's not, it's, we don't measure people by how many degrees they have or how much information they have. We measure them based on their character, their morals, their, their ethics. Morals and their ethics. And the way that they deal with themselves, and that the way that they deal with their, with with people. Uh, the Prophet said that he said he brought me down as an example of character, and what beautiful character he gave me. Definitely. Going back to the diets, there are so many diets out there. Like every week, there's a new diet, there's a new like way yeah. of eating, there's a new there's a new version of the same diet. Yeah, we talked about last week. Every week. Yeah. So, what are the the key considerations you take when you when helping a client put together a diet that suits them? Sustainability. It's easy to make a diet that works. It's difficult to create a diet that's going to be realistic. Okay. Because we've, it's, I've, I've also, you can go as far as comparing it to recidivism. So recidivism is the likelihood, I know it's not the same, it's a bit harsh, but the likelihood of a criminal to reoffend. So if you don't want your client to reoffend from the eating or the, the, the eating guidelines that you've given them, Give them guidelines that are realistic. Don't make them eat foods that they, they don't like because for every food that they dislike, there's a, there's a nutritional equivalent that, that is good for them that they probably enjoy. And your taste buds will associate with that and educate your clients. Don't just tell them that this is my, my, I've got a, a son that lives overseas in Boston. By the age of two, he knew broccoli was good for you. I'm pretty sure most kids know that vegetables are good for them, but we don't know why. Mm. If, you, if we focus on the why, we will have a much more informed society, we'll have informed children, we'll have empowered children. And now neuroscientists have been working very closely with nutritionists and gastroenterologists. There's a direct correlation between your understanding of food and the way your, your, food, your, your, your taste buds interpret that food. So if your understanding of coffee is that it's good for you, then the brain will release a peptide that make your taste buds acquire a taste for something that you previously disliked. Wow. There are two things that can make your taste buds change to like something. The first one is knowledge. 
Ashata to gives knowledge to those that he loves. And so you have knowledge that broccoli is good for you. You've heard it many times. People say, oh, broccoli is, I love broccoli. What do you love about it? It's got yeah. no taste. It's a little bit bitter. looks like a tree. But what do you really love about it? You love what it does for you. Because yeah. You either A, understand what it does for you because the brain will tell the taste buds now acquire a taste for it because it's good for you. Or B, the body does that on its own because it has a physiological desire for the nutrients in the food. Wow. So that's why what you like and crave as a child and what you like and crave as an adult is very different. Your taste buds change with time because your physiological needs change with time. So the brain will associate taste with its physiological need and doesn't ask for your consent, does it on its own. I think these days that might be an issue yeah, <laughs> with the whole yeah. PC thing. But anyway, um, with regards to the diets, you mentioned that uh, consistency is important and Absolutely. having knowledge of what you're doing, so educating your clients. Does that correlate with motivation for, for clients that don't have like high motivation levels to stick to their diets? Does knowing about what you're doing, why you're eating these certain things, correlate with better motivation? Absolutely. If you give somebody a piece of paper, they will follow it. Like, a, I'll give no offense to any Cindy's that are out there. If I'm, for example, if you follow Cindy's diet, you download it from Instagram for two weeks. After two weeks, you're going to tell Cindy to go to hell because she doesn't know anything about you and what time you wake up and what time you sleep and what time you train, what you do for training, your energy expenditure, whether you're a laborer for work or whether you're a taxi driver doesn't matter those things don't matter to that individual because you are not that individual however if something is designed and catered for your likes and dislikes for food for the time you wake up the time you sleep the time that you train what you do for training how old you are your eating preferences what time you have dinner with your family that's these little things if you pay attention to those details sustainability if i'm having giving a diet to a gentleman or to a to a to a to a female or Anybody, I ask them, I'll give you an example. If a gentleman comes to me and he's got three kids and or and he has a partner and that he has dinner with at 7 p.m. every day and the routine that I've got for him based on the time of day that he starts eating, I would ideally like him to eat dinner at 6 p.m. I would not give him a diet that gets him at six, dinner at 6 p.m. and get him to eat separately to his family, yeah. I will rearrange it and make it work somehow so that he's eating with his family. So make sure he's with his family. Because as soon as you you create uh, you, the opposite of unity, then things are going to fall apart. Because if that person is, you're going to look at, look at nutrition from a holistic standpoint. It's got to be realistic. If it's going to help him with work or is it going to get in the way of work? Is it going to make his job mad, at, make his boss mad at him? When he takes his break to eat, if it's too frequent, can you give him a food, a, a meal that is more, it's a little bit more user-friendly to to, 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 to implement into his day-to-day routine that's A, not going to, you know, upset his boss. Um, the dinner, is it, if it's without his partner, is it going to cause, you know, disunity amongst the family? These things matter. The little things matter. The details matter. And that's why it's so important to pay attention to what the person is saying to you. You have to develop a little bit of rapport, and we lack empathy these days. Definitely. We have to put ourselves literally in the other individual's shoes to be able to follow that, to be able to follow that routine, to be able to give them a routine that we know that they can sustain. So comfort for you is a major factor when developing a diet or a program Absolutely. for an individual. Absolutely. It's not just about – you've got to put the ego aside – you got to, it's not about you, it's about the individual. No, definitely. They've come I, to you to learn. Exactly. I can bring, so I can give that person a diet that I know can get them the results in half the time, but it's going to be problematic. So I would rather do it slow and steady. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we can achieve the goals, and then that person can create healthy habits without even realizing that those healthy habits are taking place. And if anything, if you empower them with knowledge as you're imparting with that information about nutrition, and they go and tell their partner about it, and they go and tell their colleagues about it. They see their colleague drinking with their food, and they tell them not to. Just think about the power that you have over these individuals' lives and the people that are around them. You're not just giving one person a diet. You're giving person. Yeah, you're giving that individual characteristics, knowledge that are going to be embedded into their subconscious, and they're going to implement that. And every person that bears witness to that is going to be influenced by that. So you are accountable for that too. And that if you take on that responsibility, if you're conscious of that responsibility when you 
you know, when you're writing a, a diet for someone, then you'll do it with a little bit more attention and enthusiasm. It's amazing the way that comfort suits diet and if it's not comfortable that it's not going to have the same effect it might break everything Absolutely. else up there's a, there's a correlation and ba- going back to what you said about comfort the body makes decisions without your consent and comfort is not just food it's also sleep and if uh, those of you who are listening you'll notice that if you don't eat enough you'll be tired because the body says you're not going to nourish me I need to preserve life I'm going to slow you down. I'm going to make you tired because I need to rest. I can't expend energy that you're not giving me. Mm. And vice versa, if you don't sleep enough, the body says, okay, I've only got two forms of recovery, sleep food. and food. You're not going to feed. You're not going to allow me to rest enough. Guess what? I'm going to cre- release a hormone called ghrelin in you that's going to make you hungry. hungry and you're going to have an appetite from hell. Your stomach's going to be like a bottomless pit. You're going to crave foods that you didn't crave the day before. You're like, why am I feeling like, you know, the sausage roll when I didn't I don't think about that sort of food. Your body is gonna create craving to satisfy a caloric intake to, to to cater for the lack of sleep that you are you are putting yourself through. And the foods that you think about under those circumstances are, are very uh, individualistic. They will be veered in your perspective towards things that you've been exposed to. So your body will have a physiological need, for example, for carbohydrates. What you pick for carbohydrates will be different to what I pick. Yeah. You will pick something that A, is going to satisfy the need for the carbohydrate, but also is going to satisfy what your taste buds have been exposed to that you also enjoy. So there's several variables that take place here. Okay. It's very intricate. It sounds like there's a lot going on it is, with it food. Is. So just to touch on um, sleep, you mentioned sleep and, and the correlation between food. Now, I know a lot of people that um, – have issues sleeping. Um, I'm one of them. I face a bad sleep deprivation, yeah. even without coffee. Yeah. Um, what kind of impact does that have on the body? Lack of sleep, well, I say to people, all debts have to be paid off. And sometimes you sleep for 10 hours and you'll realize that, okay, you wake up and you still feel like you, you know, you've had not enough sleep. The quality of the sleep matters. There are seven stages of sleep, so whether you go into rapid eye movement or not matters. But also, if you've had poor sleep for three years, you're not going to fix that in a week. It's going to take time for you to get back because that debt of sleep debt has to be paid off. And I would go so far as saying that one-third of the way you look and the way you feel is specifically due to either a lack of sleep or enough sleep. Water is the same. One-third of the way you look and the way you feel is based on hydration levels. So if you look at that combined, before you think about what supplement you should take, which probably has 1% of an influence on your, on how you look and how you feel and how you exist as a human being, if you ask yourself, am I sleeping enough and am I drinking enough? You've covered over 60, well, in two-thirds, mm-hmm. mathematics is going to kick in, mm-hmm. 66.6 recurring percent of your ability to function as a human being is just sleep and water. It is that simple. So those those two are almost the most important things in life. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, of life. earlier you mentioned um, your son. Yes. And when he was two years old, he knew about broccoli. Zane, yeah. And he knew it was good. Yeah. Um, so does the education system do enough to prepare children and teens for life skills needed to maintain a healthy lifestyle? I wish it did. Even if I, it would mean that I didn't have a job, I wish it did. Mm because it does not touch on education anywhere near enough as it does. We've, uh, there was a, 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 a project linked up with a friend of mine that I was doing with Hazem Masri, and we were going to, to schools and teaching them about health and wellness and even how to read a nutritional label. If you look at a nutritional label, you're not taught how to read that, how to interpret that. We don't even know how to read an ingredients list. That nutrition chart matters a lot less than that. Because you're eating the ingredients, you're not eating the nutritional label. You're eating what's in the food. So read the ingredients. Don't just read the calories and kilojoules and grams of protein and fat. Read the ingredients because they are mentioned in a descending order. A lot of people don't know that. You're not taught that at school. The first ingredient mentioned is the most abundant ingredient. So if it says corn syrup, you're predominantly consuming corn syrup. This is what has to be taught at schools. 
And what also has to be taught at schools is awareness of food and what it does and how it behaves, why we, why we eat. We eat for function, not just for fun. So we, we have to teach our kids. And if you look at the food pyramid, it was upside down. Yeah, I was told that, but yeah. I didn't know why. It's completely upside down. And there was a, just one of the more motivating factors to even study nutrition to begin with. It's If you look at the food pyramid, and I was looking at it, and I'm like, okay, on the base of it, this is like seven, I think seven to nine servings or something of bread, pasta, cereal. My God, how, do you, how would you have seven to nine servings of bread and pasta without feeling sick? Mm-hmm. But the, the, the interesting fact was cereal. Why would you eat cereal, which is a breakfast food, so frequently? But one of the major funders of the, that very glossy, pretty laminated poster that went into all the primary schools across the country that I would imagine cost millions and millions of dollars was funded by a company that sells cereal. Oh, so God. there's always an agenda. Yeah, you mentioned that. So in your opinion, what could be done differently or how can it be improved in, in schools? I think it should be a compulsory component of science. Because it is a science within itself. And it has to be practical. It has to be hands-on. Take the kids to the grocery store. Show them where they put certain foods. Because I'm not saying that you can never... I would never tell anybody they could never consume something for the rest of their life, such as cake. Mm. But you have to use your uncle. You have to use your brain when you're making decisions, not just your heart. You have to make decisions based on your intellect and choose things that are good for you, not just things that are apparently good for you. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a major difference. And if it's embedded into a branch of science, even if you just put it in as a component, just like you do with chapters of mathematics. Like if you look at a mathematics textbook, you've got differential calculus, you've got integral calculus, you've got sequences and series, you've got locus. Put it in as a chapter within science mm. on a yearly basis from the grades, from, from primary school all the way until you start selecting your subjects and you start taking the course that you want to take before you enter your tertiary life, then you're going to have an, a, a, a society that is aware of what it's consuming, not just obsequiously consuming blindly. So what do you think it is that at the moment now in Australian schools specifically, it has not been implemented into the sciences? Yeah, why? I think it's, uh, well, if you, it, serves, it serves industry, not humanity. Mm. If you think about it, and that's it's like pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry serves industry, it doesn't serve humanity. <laughs> and um, changes in the curriculum have to can't be done at a school, and that's what the very frustrating thing is about teaching. And the attrition rate is very high for teaching, and that's why it is the case. It is we go into the teaching profession thinking that we're going to change lives and we're going to start a revolution, and some of us are able to do that, even if it's for one person, it's worth it. But we're going there with, uh, I don't know if you've seen um, uh, Dangerous Mind yep. with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yep. So you go in there with that, you know, that mind, that mental state that you're going to make such a profound impact on all these lives. And then you realize that you're just a pawn in a chess game. You're just a number. You're in a, you're, you, you do as you're told. And it's a very frustrating reality. And it's once that sinks in with teachers' minds, and that's why the attrition rate is so high. And I'll give you a scary statistic. And there was a, a, a gentleman that I bumped into at the mosque and he said to me, oh, what uh, university did you go to? I said, Sydney University. I said, I studied, and he was asking me what I studied. And I mentioned teaching amongst the things that I studied. He said, do you still teach? I said, no, because I think he's a lecturer at, uh, at New South Wales. He said, it's such a shame. 53% of students from Sydney University that become teachers will quit teaching within five years. Well, wow. I said, I'll give you an even scarier statistic. Over 80% of teachers in general will leave the teaching profession within two years, even if it means going into retail. And this is such a noble profession that needs to be paid to. But people realize, A, it's not just the pay. It's you coming to terms with the fact that you cannot be as a as much influential yeah. as you think you can you so, can't even rectify we know yeah. we don't want to revolutionize we want to rectify and that's what our religion teaches yeah. we don't revolutionize we reform we reform we rectify and reform and that's what the the, the prophets and the companions did kings and queens flip things on their head yeah. and, and create we're there to 
help improve. But when you realize that you can't even do that, it's a very harsh, um, it's a harsh or bitter pill to swallow. And it's very difficult for the human being to, to, to deal with that. And they end up leaving the profession, unfortunately. So on the impact of um, education and kids not learning about healthy lifestyles or about the foods that they eat, I was reading a statistic from UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. Yeah. So they done a study that found that children with one obese parent have a 50% chance from suffering from obesity. Absolutely. And a child with two obese parents increases, the chance increases to about 80%. Yeah. So what are the steps that can be taken to break that cycle? The, the education, I've always said to the schools that I've um, done seminars at, I said after I finish, and I'll finish a workshop or a seminar at a school and then I'll recommend one for the staff. I'll recommend one for the parents mm. because you can tell a child what to do all day long. They will not do what you say. They will do as you do. Definitely. And that's uh, that's not my quote. It's a brilliant quote. I can't remember who it belongs to, but they will, they will not do as you say. They will do as you do. And they cannot do that if they are. If you educate the child and you don't educate the parents, you're not it's getting anywhere. Useless. It's useless. If they come home and the pantry and the fridge is still full of nonsense, they're going to follow that and pursue exactly what you are doing. Mm. They are not going to implement what you are not implementing. And the teachers have to be conscious of that too because they are they are role models in, in, in essence as well. Definitely. So I think the key is to start at a, yes, at a curriculum level, but also make it part of the component part of the, uh, the educational component of becoming a teacher. It doesn't matter. Just like a subject called coaching school sport, no. if you're studying mathematics or science, whatever you're studying, because the Department of Education knows that you're going to be taking kids out for sport at some point in time or another, it is mandatory for you to do something called coaching school sport. It should be mandatory for teachers to understand food as well. It should be – and if teachers understand food and it's part of the curriculum – the kids that become adults and then go on to have children, adults that are conscious of nutrition, mm. and that's how you rectify the problem because these little guest speakers that come in here and there on occasion, they're Band-Aid remedies. They are. And we're not about treating uh, um, symptoms. We're about treating the cause. On that on on the cause, so there was another statistic from uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2017-18. They found that two thirds of Australian adults are overweight or obese, yeah. and a quarter of all kids are overweight or obese. In your perspective, what's the major cause of that? I think that, like we said earlier, pseudo foods. We don't have access to real food. If you look at a supermarket, eighty percent or eighty-five percent of it is, is consists of pseudo foods, and the rest of it is food. Real food doesn't have an ingredient, at least the size of your arm. And if you, if you, I don't know, supermarkets are structured that way, but it, it's real food tends to be on the right hand side of the yep. supermarket. And it's a very small sector of that supermarket that is real food. And until we are taught about these foods and the importance of these foods, or we are taught that food has a thermic effect because. If you don't understand the benefits of good food, you're not going to eat good food, you're not going to do it for long, and it's going to be a fad, mm. and you're going to have a society that's obese. And I think there has to be a little bit, we have to be a little bit more stringent on the franchises that are selling pseudo foods in particular and how much power that they have. Because the marketing, the capabilities that they have due to the due to the, 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 their financial capability, creates a, a, a likelihood for everybody to consume more of those products. And then you've got a, a, a society that's not as, even if we're active as Australians, we're pretty active as yep. Australians, but because we consume so much more food than what we need, we are ne it's burning the candle at both ends. Mm. And if you look at, um, we, well, Another disgusting statistic is that we throw away 65% of the food yep. that we purchase. That already tells you that we're over-consuming. We are severely over-consuming. If we are throwing out 65% of what we what we purchase, we are as a percentage, we are consuming far much, than far, far a lot more than what we need to. Mm, definitely. And just to end, uh, you spoke with Men's Health Magazine. Yeah. Um, 
earlier on and about your daily diet or your daily routine yeah. which included your diet exercise and supplements and it looked very full-on yeah like it looks like it, it looks like a full-time job on its own but i love routine so how do you maintain that routine and how do you stay motivated to stay motivated I, results give you motivation but um as you get older you're not really looking for that superficial or the cosmetic motivation or that what's happening in the mirror so much in the beginning that's what you look for and initially that's the the motivation but after that it becomes intrinsic you become intrinsically motivated once you see how it affects your day-to-day interactions with people and your ability to stay focused in your day-to-day existence in life you'll notice that the better you eat and the better you sleep that has a ripple effect on every domain in your life. You start to deal, if you're a good husband, you'll become a great husband. If you're a good wife, you'll become a great wife. If you're a good um, uh, electrician, you'll become a great electrician. If you're a good teacher, you become a great teacher. And that's because you're more attentive, you're more focused. And it's different to the type of focus that you get from a stimulant like coffee. Once you have a holistic approach to health, um, it acts what's similar to what's, what we call nootropics, yeah. which are cognitive enhancers. And if you've got a holistic approach to health, you don't have the type of energy that coffee gives you, which is a bit of a scattered energy. Like you're at the gym, like people at the gym with too much pre-workout. Mm. They've got a lot of energy, but it's not focused. There's no tunnel vision. Uh, they're training. They're looking at their phone. They're wondering what they're going to do tomorrow. They're not focused on the task at hand. Your ability to do that significantly increases if you have a holistic approach to health that includes the amount of water you drink, paying attention to the amount amount of time that you spend having quality sleep, and whether you are eating enough, you'd be surprised how much we have to eat to perform well and to be lean and to be fit. That's what people get wrong. Less is eating less is not the answer. Eating more is not the answer. If you just want to merely gain weight or lose weight, eat more, eat less. To improve your body composition and improve your ability to function, whether it be athlete or not, that's a science. Yeah. To improve the the ratio of uh, muscle to fat in favor of muscle so you can function better as a person physiologically and cognitively, that's a science. Beautiful. Thank you very much for the very enlightening talk. I learned so much today. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining so, us. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcasts where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.